study continues in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and verse 2. And verse 1 explains why they put the chapter divisions in chapter 12, beginning there. Because in chapter 11, he showed them the great heroes of faith. And uh, in his admonition for them to remain faithful to Christianity and not going back to Hebrewism. So he says, Wherefore we, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and those were the witnesses in verse 11, uh, have testified to their faith. He said, In view of that, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And that brings us to verse 2, our continuation of this study but on the board here uh, I just put down what I've done in my Bible in chapter 12 I just underlined some of the statements that's made in there statements of admonition and encouragement to the uh, exhortation to those Hebrews <laughs> and you might want to consider those passages because that's uh, the root of what the writer is trying to gain here by talking to these people the way he does. All right, verse 2. We, do get, we did turn that on, didn't we? Yeah. <coughs> verse 2. He says, uh, after we have uh, laid aside every sin and the weight that so easily besets us in life's way, he admonishes them to run with patience uh, the race is set before us. And in the running of it, he begins in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, uh, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so let's discuss verse 2. Jesus uh, is a great example of faith because he lived faithful to God. And so as the writer finishes all them heroes of faith in verse 11, he sums it up with the greatest uh, example of faith, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He fidelity, his fidelity was never one time compromised by any personal interests uh, that would jeopardize his relationship with God. He's a great example of faith uh, but he is the one that also originated faith. Now the Greek word akron, which is translated pioneer in this verse, he's the pioneer of our faith, uh, could easily be translated conductor. Now that's a synonym of pioneer. Or the leader, there's another synonym of our faith. And the word perf perfecter suggests that he is the one that is conducting 
his faithful subjects toward the glorious heritage he has promised for them. And so we look unto Jesus in every respect. We look unto him in his example of life and to his word because he's the conductor. He's conducting us. You know what a conductor is on a train. Uh, he's a conductor, a pioneer, as some translations say. He's the leader of our faith. So Jesus is presented as the one who went before into heaven for us in chapter 6 and verse 20 of Hebrews. He went before us as a pioneer. He paved the way. Uh, all these westerns have uh, the uh, pioneer or the guy that paves the way for the wagon train. He finds the water. Uh, he's the stabilizer of everything. He finds food and pasture uh, to uh, park their wagons in on their journey. That's the idea. And uh, in uh, 6.20 where it talks about him, the fact that he is the one who went before into heaven for us, he is called in Greek prognos, uh, which means a forerunner. And so Jesus stimulates our faith by his own example and through his role as the one who brings and uh, begins and finishes our faith. So he's the beginner and the finisher of our faith. Uh, as another translation puts this verse, faith does, uh, does have its convictions out of the demonstrations of God's fidelity. And so Jesus does author our faith. He's the author of it. Hebrews 5, 12, or Hebrews 5. Remember Paul said that he's the uh, author of eternal salvation. All right. He originates it by giving the evidence that he is indeed the Son of God and every claim that he made about himself is literally true. Uh, there's his fidelity and, and the proof of his sonship and his divinity. He is the author of our faith, but he is also the terminator of it. He is the one that began it, and he is the one that will conduct it to its local uh, logical conclusion. The logical conclusion being heaven itself. <clears throat> so he says, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is the supreme example and the goal of all faith. Uh, looking, he says, or keep looking at Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame. Now that phrase there, for the joy set before him, clearly relates to the sacrifice he made when he said heaven, when he, when he left heaven for his eternal, his earthly mission. The word for in the Greek is anti, and it means over, against, or instead of. And it relates to the joy of coexisting with the Father 
in heaven with all the glories of his divine nature. But instead of those joys, he gave them up, there's that word, instead of, he gave them up and came to the earth to endure the shame of the cross. This verse speaks of the enormous sacrifice Jesus made to bring about our salvation. In order for him to accomplish that mission, he had to scorn the shame. I think King James says uh, despising the shame, doesn't it? All right, uh, the shame of the cross. Men do many things to avoid shame. But Jesus deliberately accepted the shameful humilities of crucifixion so that we might be redeemed. We owe him immeasurable devotions. That's why I like that song. Uh, when this passing world is over. Uh, and however the lyric goes. But it ends with a plea. Uh, showing us how much I really owe. We'll not know the total picture until we get on the other side. So in heaven, Jesus gave up all that God has to give. And then on earth, he gave up all that man has to give. So when he was in heaven, he humiliated himself, humbled himself, and he gave up his position with God and all that God has to give. And he came to earth and gave his life. He gave all that uh, man has to give because he become a man that he might make the sacrifice. And you can read about that in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 9 uh, for a greater explanation of this dual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself first in heaven and emptied himself of his divine prerogatives to become a man. And then on earth he humbled himself to the cross. Man has never witnessed such a sacrifice that he has that he made. And we'll spend our life dwelling on uh, the awesomeness and the details of that sacrifice. We do every Sunday morning. Uh, in a ceremonial way around the supper. But we'll understand when we get on the other side how much we really owe. There's another song we sing. Uh, well, it flew away. Let's see. Well, anyway. <clears throat> so after the shameful experience of Calvary, that verse 2 says that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's easy to see by this example how honor follows pain and glory follows suffering. We don't always see that. We don't see that, do we? Honor follows pain and glory follows suffering. 
That'll help us greatly in preaching to men and women in a congregation that has to suffer in this world. As the writer said, it's a sore travail that God has put you to here on this earth to be exercised thereby. And so we're down here to learn, to grow, and develop, and to show our fidelity in God. Verse 3. <clears throat> He asks these Jews, the writer does, to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, when you're always looked down on as a minority, as we are, because the church is not going to make no great splash in this world, this idea that preachers have and I've heard all my life that one day we're going to open the world and convince the world. No, you're not going to do that. The Lord done told you you won't. He said, wide is the gate that leads to hell, and many are the ones that's dying to go there. They, they're anxious to go there. They walk that way. They talk that way. They act that way. And in all of this uh, show of... Uh, of resentment toward us, it's easy to fade away. It's easy to for our faith to fade. And so he says, consider him who endured such opposition. We're enduring opposition, aren't we? And he says, consider him who enduring such who endured such opposition from sinful men. And here's why you need to do this. You need to consider his suffering so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All right, so prolonged opposition from sinners uh, creates weariness and, uh, and faintlessness of heart. But take lessons from Jesus, is what he's saying, uh, when persecutions come. Those sinners accused him of some of the most unreasonable things. They slandered his birth. They slandered his name. They slandered his native city. They slandered his claims and even his miracles. You remember Jesus performed one miracle and the Jews said, He does that by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus had to stop and reason with him and say, Just a minute. You claim I've done this by the power of the devil? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And you're telling me the devil's destroying his own house by the demonstration of these miracles? So they slandered his claims and even his miracles. Now notice that Jesus ran the race, it says, and he never allowed the encumbrances the concerns of physical existence to stand in his way. Now, I don't like saying this, but it has to be said. We have to let the mind dwell on it for just a minute. We, as people, I've seen it all my life for 80 years, so to speak. I've witnessed those who profess to be Christians allowing the simplest things to hinder them from... Uh, adding what they, their contribution to the assembly in coming together. 
of standing firm because they get, well, like you said here, uh, uh, don't let these physical exp uh, existence stand in the way. Even in the uh, in his uh, temp temptation, he would not compromise his integrity. He would not compromise his relationship with God in order to satisfy any physical need. So if you're sick and you come to church, you come to the assembly, you gather with God's people and with God in the assembly, it might just be that you feel better after it's over. Don't you think so? A lot of our sickness is up here in the head and it affects the body. There's people that get sick just because of the mental mindset. And they sit down and eventually die. They're sick and they sit down and they think, well, I'll feel better if I eat more. Pretty soon they're big as a, a house, 500 pounds, and they take their own life through such nonsense. Life demands a forward advance, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't the battlefield ex exemplify the same thing? You're on a battlefield. You're to address the enemy. You're to face the enemy. And don't let Tokyo Rose, if you are familiar with World War II, don't let her influence your thinking. Those old boys have been in the mud and the blood for some of them two years, some for three. Hadn't seen home in so long. Eating cold food fighting the battle, aggressing the enemy. And Tokyo Rose comes on the battlefield with a microphone and she begins to put doubt in her mind. Your wife is taken up with uh, your friend and you don't have a wife anymore. The home you built, your, your friend now lives in it with your wife. All you gotta do is surrender Come over to our side and we'll feed you. We'll give you a warm place to sleep until we send you home. Well, that's the offer that the world makes to you and me. Look at all the pleasures of sin. That's for a season, that's true. But look at them that you're passing over. All the pleasures. Would you sacrifice the Lord's sacrifice? on Sunday morning to go camping, to go fishing? Is that more important than honoring the one who died for you and is offering you eternal life? You see the picture, don't you? You bet you do. <coughs> so notice that Jesus... Uh, ran his race and he never allowed the encumbrances, uh, that is the concerns of physical existence to stand in his way. Even in his temptation, he would not compromise his integrity. He would not compromise his relationship with God in order to satisfy any physical need. He always maintained his integrity and so the writer here is holding forth Jesus as an example 
of one that has faithfully has faithfully fulfilled his course and has maintained his fidelity toward God. <clears throat> Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, he says, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Of course, Jesus resisted to the point of, of blood, didn't he? Even to the point of death. He, he struggled against sin, first in his own life and then struggled uh, to the point of, of blood for the sins of others. Persecutions will arise against Christians and there will be severe trials and opposition. There will be death for others. <coughs> Remember the trials and opposition that these Jews, a lot of them are facing. They've lost, because they obeyed Christ, they've lost their heritage. Their father has disowned them. They, they're no longer an heir to their father's uh, plantation, to the things of their father. And I told you that I knew that to be a, a real-life situation because I knew a fellow that forfeited all of that in his obedience to Christ. And there will be death for some, that's true. There will be some of the same things that we read about in the closing verse of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, uh, those things will happen to the believers. Remember what he talked about? Them being sawed asunder and, and all sorts of things. Those were written to show us that there's things we're going to maybe have to suffer. But the uh, outcome far exceeds the suffering. In fact, uh, Paul in Romans 8 says the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that we'll one day receive. You want that glory? Or do you want an eternal hell, a damnation, of being cut off from God and everything that God supplies here? I mean, right here is a boot camp, really. But he supplies all the things that are satisfying that crystal clear stream that flows for water, the food, the steaks, the hamburgers. We could go on and on, couldn't we? But all the nice things, a sunny day, all those are the gift of God in a temporary world. What do you think's in that eternal world? And keep this in mind, when God created you and I, and give us a temporary physical body that's gonna, that came from the dust and is going to the dust. If this life is so grand and so great, how come he didn't make himself a body and come down here and enjoy it? You ever thought about that? And how come Jesus recognizing and realizing where he came from uh, in his humanity there in John 17, verse 5. He sounds a little anxious to me as he prays to the Father. And he says, Father, I finished the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify thou me with 
the glory that I had with thee from the beginning. So the writer's telling them it's worth the fight. It's worth it. You haven't resisted the blood yet, but it's worth it if you do. And he did. And he did it not for himself, but for you and me. Okay. Struggle in the Greek is normally the word. Uh, it's the word agonia. A-G-O-N-I-A. Our word agony comes from that word. There's a lot of religious words we use, like the word baptism. It's not an English word. It was a transliteration from the Greek sounding baptizo. And so there's a lot of words in our language that originated with with, uh, uh, the Greek language. And we've said this before, I'll say it again. The Greek language is the most in-depth language in the world. You think English explains everything clearly? No, 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 no. One example, uh, in our language, the word love is the word love. That's all we got. But in the Greek, there's four flexions of love. There's a gape, there's a phleo, and I don't know what the other two are, I can't remember. But there's four flexions of the word that we know as love. And it goes into separating and dividing and showing you different depths and different uh, kinds of love. English don't have that. And so don't ever get to thinking because we're Americans and we speak English and we're the smartest uh, toads that ever face the earth. We get to think of that sometimes, don't we? And you know the people in other countries around the world get to think of the same thing. That's why we go to war every now and then we get all puffed up and think that we're the winners all the way. <laughs> and all we need is a leader to lie to us and say, Son, you're fighting for freedom. Oh, yeah, give me a gun. And I will fight for free, freedom, my buddy. <coughs> they don't know what freedom is. They've never read the Bible, evidently, or they wouldn't be up there advocating using a gun to fight for freedom. Like my dad told me years ago, he said, <coughs> Freedom to a lot of men is when I kill this guy, I'll have freedom. (laughs) So, so this word uh, struggle or antagonia this struggle that we have is, is more intense. He called it antagonizia. Uh, do we, we do take a position antagonistic to sin, and when we begin to resist sin and antagonize it, it becomes an antagonist. Sin does. It's an antagonizer. 
It antagonizes us. Have you ever thought through a sin that was at your front door pleading with you to step through and, and obey it? You ever thought it through? What's the end result of it? Well, ultimately, it's death. But what is the temporary results of it? Well, think of anything in regards to immorality. Is it worth it? The price that you'll pay? The shame that you'll endure? Is it worth it? There's no honor in sin at all. And the Lord warns you, be sure your sin will find you out. Now that's not, he don't have to search to find it. He knows it. But he's telling you that in this world you live in, your sin's not going to go un, unrecognized. Because Jesus said, by a man's fruits, you will know him. So your sin will be found out. If you're a proud toad, it'll be understood by uh, the simplest of men. If you're a selfish person, it'll be seen by the simplest. All those things are signs that tell people about you. Sin's an ugly thing. And when you're tempted to sin in any way, think it through and see the devastating effects of the results of it. <clears throat> So we struggle against it, the writer says here. And so there is the fight, the fighting that goes on on this battlefield of life. We wrestle, uh, but not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. Those are the words used in Ephesians 6, verse 10 and 11. That's why God give us the armament of a soldier. You remember Paul goes ahead in verse 12 describing the armament of a soldier in Ephesians 6. He talks about the helmet of salvation, uh, the, tr the girdle of truth, the sword which is the word of God, the shield of faith, the sandals prepared to go. Heard, heard me a good sermon right there. Just the word go. The Christian is admonished to go. He's not admonished to sit down and relax and enjoy Christianity. I'm on my way to heaven. Well, you ain't making much of a move. Well, no, but I'm going to heaven. I doubt it. Not if you don't go. So there would be a good sermon, wouldn't it? I think so. Wrestling, as the text says here, tells us that our father, our warfare against sin is a hands-on battle. It is a hand-to-hand -hand combat. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, you're battling against an adversary, against principalities and powers in high places. And God's given you the ability to withstand, to fight against, but it's hand-to-hand. -hand. And it's today, it's tomorrow, it's the next day, it's the rest of your life. <clears throat> so remember that Jesus did resist under blood. And the writer said, you haven't went that far yet. You might, but you haven't. 
and I believe that we have got to be impressed and deeply grateful to the blood of Christ because uh, here's one man who paid a higher price and suffered more for our salvation than we've been willing to pay. When the Romans come and persecute, persecution will begin. Now here the writer is talking about A.D. 70 when the Romans come to destroy him like Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Those gospel, those three gospel writers declared uh, what he said about that destruction. <laughs> so when the Romans uh, come and persecution will begin, it will be added to the already existing antagonism of their former fellow Jewish uh, uh, compatriots because the Christian will not fight against Roman invaders. He's not going to fight these wars for these pompous pigs like we have as the President of the United States and a bunch of them pompous pigs that sits in Congress and the Senate that we've put in office. They're the ones that starts these wars. And they lie to us about the end result of the war. Well, son, you're fighting for freedom. Oh, okay. And away we go on a lie. And many thousands, <laughs> if not tens of thousands, die on the battlefield because of a lie. I read once that there was more battles fought over women than there ever has been for anything else. Now the soldier didn't know he was dying for some woman that uh, the emperor lusted after or whatever, but that's what they were doing. And what are you gonna go die for? The lies of these politicians? They don't have peace. Peace comes with God. It don't come from man. Peace with your neighbor. Peace with your wife. Peace with your children. It comes from the instruction and the leadership of God. It doesn't come uh, through being a, a good loyal citizen to some pompous pig up there in the White House. Oh, say, okay, so uh, what did the Lord tell him to do But when the Romans come? Did he tell him to fight? He told him to flee, didn't he? Yeah, you want to get out of the way of the machinery of war. That's what he's telling them. Step out of the way. Now they say, run you over with a tank. <laughs> get out of the way. Let the heathen fight his battles. Let him die on his own battlefields. Don't make it your battlefield. Uh, and that will create opposition on the part of their uh, fellow uh, nationals. And so they will be enduring persecution and opposition from two major sources. They'll be enduring persecution operation from Romans and also from Hebrews. They're going to lose their inheritance from their father and so on and so forth. And so the writer says, you may have to resist the blood. 
But let us remember this, <coughs> that when you do suffer, you will be suffering with the help of God. Is God in there to help you? Is God there with his word to encourage you? The very fact of God and what you know about God, that's enough to encourage you to, to keep on fighting. You need to learn to rely and to lean upon God in your periods of stress in the persecutions that you endure. You have to keep as, as frontless before your eyes who you are and what you are. You're not a man of this world. You're a stranger passing through. You're a pilgrim. You have a pilgrimage to endure. You have a faith to manifest so that you can shine like that light set on a hill. All right, Zechariah in chapter 13, and you remember chapter 13, very powerful chapter uh, in regard to the sacrifice that Christ made at Calvary. In chapter 13, it gives an amazing prediction uh, of what will happen in Palestine when the Romans come to destroy Jerusalem. <clears throat> the writer explained uh, that uh, what will be happening in the days of Messiah. In the first few verses, Zechariah in chapter 13 tells us of the fountain that will be opened for the cleansing of sin. And it is a fountain of blood that will flow from the veins of Messiah. In verse 7, the sword of divine justice will come down upon the neck, not of the sinner, but of his substitute, Jesus Christ, the one that died in our place. The sword is in the hand of God the sword of justice, and he's going to punish human sin. It's been paid for. It's punished. <clears throat> Jesus didn't die for little sins. He died for sin, period. He didn't die for past sins. He died for sin, period. Do you get the point? He died for sin, beginning with Adam, the first man and woman, uh, Adam and Eve, to the last one that will ever exit this world and so in our preaching we need to make stress the fact that he died for the sin problem the sword uh, falls as God says smite the shepherd in verse 7 the, the man that is my fellow the word fellow in the Hebrew means equal one who stands shoulder to shoulder an equal Jehovah Witnesses said Jesus is just a good prophet, but he's not divine in God. All right. Smite the shepherd and the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord. Again, that's verse 7. The prophet continues to discuss what will happen in the next few years uh, to the sheep. We know who the sheep are. The Lord spoke much about us being sheep. They will be scattered, and they were, weren't they? What happened to the apostles? 
at Jesus' trial. They all left him. They didn't understand that he set, come to set up an eternal kingdom. And they can't understand how, with all of his power, he's allowed himself to be crucified. He's not resisting. Not resisting a death uh, of a vicarious sacrifice for you and me. They didn't understand that. And so they left him because they don't want to die for nothing. And that's how they understood it at the time. But look at the metamorphosis that took place in those apostles. When Jesus was on trial, they left him and they was up in the upper room behind a locked door. They was scared to even leave town because somebody might point to them. Now there's one of his followers right there because the Romans was intent on not only killing the leader, but anyone who was connected with that leader. Isn't that the way governments work? Don't they go after these uh, uh, these groups uh, that are akin to Sheriff Fosse Comitatus and them groups? Yeah, they do. They want to stamp out all of it, so they go after the leader first and then the rest of them. That's why when the soldiers come to get Jesus, what do he tell the soldiers? I'm the man you come for. Take me and keep your hands off of them boys. Because he had a mission for them. He, served, he chose them for a purpose. John 15, verse 16. He told them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then he explained what the purpose was in verse 27. To receive the Spirit to guide him into all the truth as they preached to a lost and dead world. So, <clears throat> now these uh, ones who are, are scattered are the ones who believe in the Messiah. Read Acts 8 and verse 1 through 4. How does it begin? They were all scattered. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Don't you know they had to give a lot of thought to if it was worth it? Because they lost their homes. They lost their heritage. They lost their everything. You and I haven't seen days like that, have we? You and I are spoilt, rotten in America. As God told uh, through the prophets, he spoke to the other nations in times past. He said, the more I bless you, What's the result? The farther you leave me. That's true about America, isn't it? We've been blessed over here. Our forefathers thought a lot of this Bible and religion. You could find a church about on every corner. Not now. You find taverns on every corner. You find uh, marijuana salesmen on every corner just about. It's a popular thing. And so the more God blesses us with technology and understanding, and we've got automatic washing machines, we've got cars that'll almost talk to you, and you can turn loose and have a cigarette while it's driving down the road, and it'll keep on track. We got all this that's just spoilt us. We're spoiled rotten. 
You know, before you deal with a problem, you got to understand that you have a problem. A lot of people don't see the problem. That's why we have to elaborate on it sometimes and explain it in different ways that we have problems and one of them is being spoiled. I'm spoiled. Uh, can I say you are too? Well, you are, whether you want to recognize it or not. Okay, though, Jer though Zachariah says, I will turn my hand against the little ones, he says that two-thirds of the land will perish, meaning that two-thirds of the people will be cut off. <clears throat> History affirms that it happened accordingly. The Romans carried thousands of Jews uh, to Rome in slavery. God promised that one-third of the people will be left in the land. Now you realize we're talking about uh, the following verses of verse 7 of Zechariah 13, don't you? He's going to raise his hand against the little ones. Now here is the interesting thing. God says this one-third will be brought into the fire. Now, what's fire mean? We've read a lot about fire here lately in different studies. It merely means the judgment of God and the things that, and those things consist of what we have to face in this world. The fiery trials of life. They're fiery, aren't they? They hurt. And then we sing that song, Oh, men, to the rock let me fly, to the rock that's higher than I. We're looking for help. We're looking for hope, aren't we? We're looking for deliverance. Where are you going to find it? You're going to find it with Biden. You won't find it with Trump either, even though we admire him uh, for his selflessness in his battle for you and I in a physical, temporal world. And so God says, I'm going to bring them into the fire, but I will refine them as silver and will test them like gold. So how does God view us? Silver and gold, precious things. That's, what, that's why he uses silver and gold. It means nothing to him, but it does to man. And he's reasoning with man. And he's telling you that he sees you as silver as you would look upon it as precious. Silver and gold. And until it goes through the refinery, it don't have much worth, does it? What father is worth, uh, what father regards his son and has admiration for his son when he grows up? When he's never been uh, disciplined? Well, the father's smart enough to feel his own guilt and his own shame in not discipline that boy, but he, he has no, that boy has no value. He has no worth. He don't look on anyone but himself. He's selfish, self-centered, and why well, you just go on with a picture? Uh, so these one, this one third that's separated from the two thirds will be tried. They will be tested. The two-thirds that were destroyed by the Romans did not believe in Messiah. 
They have rejected him. They will fight against Rome. These Christians will not fight, but they will endure great persecution at the hand of the Romans and the Jews. You see what that tells us? That's, that tells us that we're here to suffer. We're not here to fight. I've made, I've made the statement before that I've got old enough to realize I don't have any enemies. There's not a man I can think of that I hate. I hate their ways. I hate their language. There's a lot of things about them I hate, but I don't hate them. I'd do anything to rescue them from the damnation that they're headed for. My worst enemy, of course, I don't have any, but if I had one, I cannot see him suffering hell without me in tears telling him about the grace of God. If he decides to go there, that's his choice. But I have no enemies. And so I have nobody to fight. I think I told you last week about the reason we have this law called the conscientious objector. It was because of a fellow named Alexander Campbell. He was a Baptist that convicted him. The scriptures convinced him of the necessity of baptism. And so he left the Baptist doctrine. And he was one, incidentally, that wrote the manuals that the preachers learned from. Very intelligent man. And he went before Congress and established our right to be a conscientious objector. And maybe you, like the world, looks on a conscientious objector as a coward, as someone that isn't fighting for freedom. You know, you got to be careful how you judge men. But these Christians will not fight this one-third that believe in Messiah. They will endure great persecutions at the hand of the Romans and the Jews. We've got to learn to rely on God. He knows what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. Jesus said he knows every time a sparrow falls from the sky. Every time a little sparrow, a worthless little bird like that falls from the sky, God knows it and is concerned about it. Yeah. And what Jesus say after he explained it, God feeds the birds, the sparrows, and dresses the lilies. In Matthew 6, he said, And how much greater are you than they? If he's that concerned about the sparrows, what about you? Does he know your persecutions? Does he know that the Romans are coming on you? Yeah. And he expects the fidelity of your faith to stand firm, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Absolutely. Let me finish this sentence and then next week we'll begin with verse 5. God said his people will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say they are my people. I, I, I'm anxious to hear that. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm anxious to hear that. I won't deserve it, but I'll, 
I will hear it said to somebody, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Though Christians will suffer, they're not thereby being punished by God. You know, that's what a lot of people think, that they're being punished by God when they suffer. God's never done anybody that way. We're the ones that invented punishment. We're the ones that punished ourselves in many ways. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it's governmental-afflicted. Sometimes it's family-afflicted, but we afflict ourselves. We've made a world we live in. Uh, the best way to explain it is we're like a kid that potted in his own nest. That's why the people are fleeing other countries a lot of times. It's because they screwed up their politics and they made a, a nation that they can't live under and so they want to run over here and <coughs> collect our benefits. Free school, free education, free medicine and everything. And we pay for it. And then they began to potty in their nest over here, which is our nest. There's nobody in the Northwest that's happy with Californians moving up in their area because they come with the same mindset that they had down there that screwed up California. And then they want to come up here and potty in our nest. No, we're not too happy about it, are we? I'm not. <laughs> Let me do that again. That felt good. <laughs> and so though a Christian will suffer, they're not thereby being punished by God. Rather, he is refining them as gold and silver. And I want to come out of the furnace with all the dross rendered off, don't you? I want to come out very precious. Well, anyway, our time's up. So there's where we begin verse 5 next week. <clears throat> and today's the 10th already.